Chapter 4. Ascend. The Way of Faith. On Celibacy. This chapter should come with a warning label. We're talking here about something that's not for everybody. In fact, you have to be a little crazy to even consider celibacy as a way of life. Why? First of all, it's not natural. Every living thing is wired for survival, and that includes reproduction. You don't need a Darwinian scholar to tell you any species that doesn't reproduce doesn't survive. Second, there's the economics of marriage. The status of married with children, at least in this part of the world, is one of the best indicators of long-term financial security. Meanwhile, living below the poverty line, we find a disproportionate segment of the population who are unmarried. Third, as Alyssa said so well in the preceding pages, the whole sweep of Judeo-Christian revelation celebrates marriage between a man and a woman as the definitive icon of God's intimate relationship with his chosen people. This is so important, it bears repeating, marriage is the sacramental sign of unbreakable covenant love. With so much going for it, why would anybody in their right mind choose not to be married? We'll have to do some digging to uncover the roots of such insanity. The Difference The popular TV series The Chosen presents the life of Jesus in an imaginative way. We get to know the familiar figures of the Gospels, Mary Magdalene, Nicodemus, Peter, James, and John, before their famous encounters with this eagerly awaited but utterly unexpected Messiah. The series offers us a window on what they might have been like as people, what brought them to the place where Jesus changed their lives. As the Mary Magdalene character explains, quote, I was one way, and now I'm completely different, and the thing that happened in between was him. Have you ever been around somebody whose faith is fresh? I mean, someone who has encountered Jesus in a personal way for the first time. They're kind of crazy, right? They can't stop talking about him, worshiping him, reading his word, being around his people. I know this isn't everybody's experience, but it happens often enough. Isn't it tempting to take the cynical view? Oh, it's just a phase. They'll get over this. What we can easily miss is the message God wants to communicate to people with settled faith, as in the rest of us. That you can't meet Jesus, the living Lord and Messiah, the heart's deepest longing, the one who alone knows and understands you for who you really are, and come away unchanged. Do feelings fade? Yes. Does experience temper zeal? Necessarily. But in the soul of a true disciple, the difference Jesus makes is enduring, and the fire of that first love is untamed. To know Jesus Christ, to really know him, is to never be the same again. I believe it all goes back to being chosen. Our hearts want to be wanted. Why else do we post, tweet, and text so much? The fear of being overlooked drives us to distraction as we restlessly seek new ways of being noticed and liked. Dating apps thrive in a culture of attention-seeking, where every swipe right somehow validates all the effort we put into our carefully curated profiles. Underneath these compulsive patterns is the genuine human need to not only be seen, but selected. Whether it's the star quarterback on NFL Draft Day, the lover who works out the most elaborate plans to win the beloved, 
or the applicant vying for an entry-level position at a top company, we all dream of being chosen by those we admire and desire. This longing to be chosen is clear enough at the human level, but it gets murky when we move to the divine. Consider your reaction to these words. Jesus desires you. He has chosen you. On some level, you know it's true, but you also probably have doubts. Being chosen by the Lord is something every person of faith has to wrestle with. Human choosing we eagerly embrace, but when it's God's choice, we want to push back, to object. Why me? Why not him, her, or those people over there? There's a strange divide here. On the one hand, you have the joy of being chosen. On the other, we feel doubt and struggle to understand God's purposes. Discuss. Have you ever thought of yourself as chosen by God? What reactions or questions arise as you sit with this? To find answers in this divide is the pursuit of a lifetime. But there's a more pressing need directly related to the subject of this book. Being chosen is the basis of Christian discernment. God's Choice Discernment is not first and foremost about my choice, but about God's. As with the astonished joy of that first conversion experience, every subsequent call from the Lord expresses His constant loving choice of me in all my imperfection. If I don't get this before I set out on a journey of discernment, I've lost my way before taking the first step. When we put God's choice first, the question becomes, what does the God who has chosen me choose for me? We venture out from a secure place, the knowledge of being chosen, to explore our desires in light of God's desires. Recall that in every authentic vocation, the Lord doesn't ignore our true desires, but weaves them together with His. And submitting our desires, rather than pursuing them more or less on our own, doesn't nullify them. In fact, we make them more secure, since the refining fire of God's love brings stability and consistency to our desires. God's way or our way? It's like the difference between walking on solid ground and quicksand. While every life state discernment is about God's choice, it's especially true when we approach the mystery of celibacy. It's not primarily a way of life certain people choose, but rather a way of life for which certain people are chosen. Quote, It is God who takes the initiative in the call. The absolute primacy of grace in vocation is most perfectly proclaimed in the words of Jesus, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Unquote. St. John Paul II, Pastores Dabo Vobis, number 36. What, then, is the source of the insanity? What leads some to set aside marriage in pursuit of a celibate call? I believe the hidden root is this. Celibacy is another experience of being chosen. Faith, once again, or maybe for the first time, becomes fresh. Such joy can overthrow otherwise sensible people. Suddenly, they're willing to give up everything family, money, future plans, freedom, marriage, kids, comfort, and security, to follow and imitate Jesus in this unique way. Nobody in their right mind would choose it unless they were first chosen for it. I can't give you any empirical data, 
but I'd be willing to bet most celibates would say the same thing. This was not my idea. Discuss. Recall that one of the discernment attitudes from Chapter 2 was, Explore indifferently. How open are you to the call of marriage or celibacy? Do you believe that God can fulfill you in either vocation? Why or why not? Where does celibacy come from? How to make sense of this special call, this divine insanity? If it's not a human invention, where does it come from? Historically speaking, Christian celibacy originates in Jesus himself. In the beginning, God creates man and woman in his image and likeness, gives each to the other as companion and helper, and then says to them, quote, Be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Unquote. Genesis 1, 28. The essential character of married life is reaffirmed by Jesus when he's questioned about divorce. Quote, Have you not read that from the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. Unquote. Matthew 19, 4-6 From the time of Adam and Eve to the time of Jesus, marriage was the normative natural call for the human person. While the Lord acknowledges that not everyone can be married for various reasons, he makes clear that God's original purpose for matrimony is monogamous, lifelong, fruitful fidelity between man and woman. Then comes the unexpected twist. Alone with his disciples later, Jesus points to a new possibility, distinct from marriage. Quote, Not all can accept this word, but only those to whom it is granted. Unquote. He frames it as something that's not for everybody. Quote, some are incapable of marriage because they are born so, some because they are made so by others, unquote. He notes the normal reasons people don't get married, but he doesn't dwell on them. Quote, some because they have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, unquote. Here is the astonishing revelation, a life state directed exclusively to heaven. By these words, Jesus inaugurates a different kind of creation, directed not to fruitfulness in this world, but in the next. He concludes with an invitation, quote, Whoever can accept this ought to accept it, unquote. Matthew 19, 10-12 Three important qualities define this new life state. It is missional, relational, and invitational. The call is missional because it not only points to the kingdom of heaven, it is the life of heaven lived here on earth. The call is relational because it imitates Jesus himself who remained unmarried for the sake of the kingdom. The call is invitational in that not all can accept it, but those who can should. We are confronted again by the mystery of God's choice. Why does God select certain people to be celibate? We can rule out one reason from the start. It is not because they're necessarily more holy than everybody else. In fact, it's often the case that God chooses those less qualified, spiritually speaking, to make it clear that the gift comes from Him. See Deuteronomy 7.7. 7. Think about it. If God only called the spiritual people, or the impressive personalities, wouldn't it be easy to say, Oh, I can totally see why so-and-so was chosen. Isn't it very different when we see somebody called and we think, Lord, you chose that person? Really? That recognition forces us to consider the fact that God can use anybody, regardless of how qualified we might consider them. 
to be a sign. God wants to make us stop and notice. And this highlights a key element of the celibate call. It's supposed to be a sign. A sign is a visible marker, a, a directional indicator. It tells you where you're going and how to get there. Signs keep you from getting lost. In an age of GPS, it's easy to forget the universal human need for signs. The sign of celibacy plays a vital role in the life of the church. To understand this better, we start with the big picture. Fundamentally, there are two states in the body of Christ, the laity and the hierarchy. Among the laity, we find married and single people. Among the hierarchy, also called the clerical state, are bishops and priests. The first state flows directly from baptism, while the second includes the grace of ordination. The former is secular in character, while the latter is sacred. This distinction has nothing to do with better or best, since both are tasked to bring the kingdom of God into the world. Rather, it highlights the different domains of the laity and the hierarchy the fields in which they pursue holiness while carrying out their respective missions. More on this below. From either state, God calls some to consecrated life. Lay people become sisters or brothers. Clerical people become religious priests. Quote, the religious state of life is not an intermediate state between the clerical and lay states, but rather the faithful of Christ are called by God from both these states of life so that they might enjoy this particular gift in the life of the church, one that undeniably belongs to its holiness." Unquote. Lumen Gentium, Numbers 43 and 44. What distinguishes the holiness of consecrated life from other states is the role of vows. Traditionally, there are three called the evangelical councils, chastity, poverty, and obedience. A vow is a particular kind of promise, one that is over and above what is required. Here's the way the Catechism explains it, quote, A vow is a deliberate and free promise made to God concerning a possible and better good, which must be fulfilled by reason of the virtue of religion. A vow is an act of devotion in which the Christian dedicates himself to God or promises him some good work. By fulfilling his vows, he renders to God what has been promised and consecrated to him. The Acts of the Apostles shows us St. Paul concerned to fulfill vows he had made, unquote. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 2101 and 2102. Did you know that vows are not required for either the priesthood or married life? Instead of vows, these life states call for specific promises, the priest to his bishop, husband and wife to each other, and in both vocations to God. Sacramentally speaking, promises are proper, while vows are voluntary. In consecrated life, vows go beyond what is strictly required by our baptism, drawing more deeply from the well, so to speak. Why do more? St. John Paul II explains, quote, The very purpose of consecrated life is conformity to the Lord Jesus in his total self-giving. Unquote. Vita Consecrata, number 65. Working together. Distinctions like these are important, but they shouldn't blind us to the overall design. We're meant to work together. Consecrated, clerical, and lay each play a critical role in the life and mission of the church. We are signs to the world, yes, but also to one another. Here's one way this works out. When you were baptized, you entered the lay state. And by now you know, if you didn't already, that this is a full vocation in and of itself. A lay person in worldly terms is an amateur. But in the church, the role of the laity is mission-critical. 
To be a lay person is to be a frontline warrior, part of God's insertion team taking ground as a forward operating base for the kingdom. While the hierarchy attends to sacred spaces, lay people build the city of God inside the gates of the city of man. The mission of the laity is a sustained, coordinated participation in a global campaign. Think about that the next time you leave Mass. The word itself derives from the same root as mission. In other words, you've been provisioned and have updated your strategic objectives. You're now returning to the battlefield to execute the plan. When you hear, go in peace, you're ready for war. But the war is long, and it's easy to lose sight of what you're fighting for. You need to see where this is all going. What's the ultimate purpose of the daily struggle? God raises up some to show the rest not only where we're going, but why it matters. The celibate witness, embodied either in priesthood or in consecrated life, communicates that this ain't it. The world is not our home. We need to be reminded, since it's so easy to settle down and lose that fighting edge. John warns of this when he writes, quote, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, sensual lust, enticement for the eyes, and a pretentious life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Yet the world and its enticements are passing away. Unquote. 1 John 2, 14-17 Pause here. Maybe for some who read this, there's a real appreciation for the celibate call, but also an inner voice protesting, Okay, that's great for others, but it's not going to be me. If this voice sounds familiar, I invite you to counter with a question. Why not? In reality, God desires many more people to accept the call to celibacy than currently do. Does the church and the world need to see more of the strong holy marriages Alyssa wrote about? Absolutely. But there is also great need for celibate men and women to serve and to be a sign for the life to come. Three Celibate Life States, One Focus Christian celibacy has many expressions but one focus, Jesus Christ. Each shines light on a different facet of the Lord and His kingdom. We'll consider only three here, priesthood and two kinds of consecrated life, specifically religious sisterhood and brotherhood. These are the celibate life states you're most likely to come across as a Catholic, which means they're more accessible for discernment. Though the descriptions below are brief, read them prayerfully, asking the Lord to spark your interest and inspire you to explore. Priesthood as a sign of Christ as Son. Quote, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here I am, I said, send me. Isaiah 6, 8. When the priest approaches the altar, he mirrors here on earth what's going on in heaven. The eternal Son stands before the Father's throne offering his one perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins and the transformation of the world. When gathered to worship in holy liturgy, we the baptized participate in this sacrifice fully, even if we only see dimly. It is as if the body of Christ presses against the keyhole of a door that separates this world from the next to get a glimpse of the eternal celebration to which we are all being united by the grace of communion. In these moments, the priest not only represents Christ, but he acts in persona Christi, that is, in the person of Christ. At Mass when he says, This is my body, this is my blood, or in confession when he says, Your sins are forgiven, go in peace, it is the Lord himself who speaks. 
Priests are mediators, specially appointed go-betweens, ministering saving grace in the name of Christ on behalf of the Church. The vocation of priesthood calls forth everything a man can give. It will test his limits and surpass his abilities. If he is truly generous in his self-gift, he will gradually become what he offers on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, a sacrifice wholly consumed. Priestly celibacy is not universal, it should be noted, but in the Latin rite it is normative. It underlines the spousal nature of Christ's relationship with the Church. The priest cares for his congregation as the Lord loves his people, with a totality of commitment that mirrors marriage. Intense effort, anxious concern, and a deep yearning for the life and salvation of God's family, motivated by the heart of the shepherd. Nuptial imagery conveys the union of the bridegroom with his beloved, but in the realities of daily church life that sign can get clouded over. So the Lord gives his people another view, this time from the bride's side. Discuss. Have you ever experienced Jesus ministering to you through a priest in a way that blessed you and left a lasting impression? Sisterhood is a sign of the union of bride and Christ as bridegroom. Quote, Listen, my daughter, and understand. Pay careful heed. Forget your people and your father's house that the king may desire your beauty. Unquote. Psalm 45, 11 and following. Each woman consecrated to Christ becomes a living embodiment of the church united to her Lord. She makes visible in her person the great romance, the union of heaven and earth. What then is a sister? She is a bride consecrated to Jesus as her husband. What's more, she is a disciple whose heart cannot find satisfaction in any merely human love. She yearns to make herself a gift to the one who is eternal, all goodness, all truth, and all beauty. Only Jesus can fulfill this infinite longing. But the consecrated woman is no lady-in-waiting. She is swept up in the great battle by her divine husband and king. The warfare she practices is not the violent kind we see in the world, but it takes no less nerve. Her weapons are uniquely feminine and therefore creative. They are lethal, not against human flesh, but against spiritual evil. In this, the sister follows not only Jesus, but, in a particular way, his mother, Mary. In this fallen world, a shadow is cast over natural motherhood. Every new life is sadly destined for death. But while natural motherhood cannot overcome death, the supernatural self-gift of the consecrated woman follows Mary's yes as a maternal sacrifice that brings forth eternal life. The consecrated woman shares in Mary's motherly care for the whole church, and in her prayer and evangelization, she begets countless sons and daughters for heaven. It is no accident that the patroness of the church's missionary activity was a cloistered nun, St. Therese of Lisieux. Women discuss... How are some of the natural desires of a woman, for example, to be loved, to be chosen, or to bear life, fulfilled in religious life? What is attractive about religious life to you? Brotherhood is a sign of Christ as brother. Quote, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Unquote. Psalm 133, 1. While priesthood and sisterhood emphasize singularity in their witness to Christ, brotherhood emphasizes plurality. 
The vocation of brother makes no sense apart from brotherhood, a word widely used but little understood. Even in the secular world, whether on the playing field or the battlefield, men come alive when they experience real brotherhood. How much more so when the natural gift of fraternity is elevated by the grace of the Holy Spirit? Then it becomes a vivid sign of the brotherhood of all believers united under one Father with Jesus as our older brother. Just so, the Lord says to Mary Magdalene when he emerges from the tomb, quote, Go to my brothers and tell them, I am going to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, unquote. John twenty seventeen. At the dawn of the new creation, Jesus sets forth the new relationship he shares with his disciples. Pope Benedict XVI once wrote, quote, When Jesus calls his disciples brothers, then, it is something quite different from an ordinary rabbi speaking of his pupils. It is a decision for the future. For in these twelve the new people of God is being addressed. In them it is being designated as a people of brothers, a great new brotherhood. Unquote. Prayer is at the heart of Christian brotherhood. The brother is first and foremost a man of worship. He attends to the Lord night and day in prayer and fasting and vigils. His whole life is a prayer, a fragrant offering pleasing to the Father. Further, the brother dedicates all his earthly resources, his strength, his gifts, his fruitfulness, his wealth, to the pursuit of heaven. Among others of like mind, he is urged onward in faithfulness and holiness. He encourages, challenges, and summons his brothers to live out the fullness of their baptismal grace, and he receives the same in turn. See Hebrews 10.24. Prayer leads to action. A brother is poor and lives with the poor. He has neither silver nor gold, but only the power of Jesus' name, see Acts 3.6, and the liberating force of the gospel, Matthew 11.5. He is available to the confused, a friend to the marginalized, and patient with a difficult personality. For the church as a pilgrim people, the brother is a companion on the journey. While the priest points us to heaven, brothers mingle among us as leaven. Priests preside, but brothers stand at our side. Men discuss. Where have you experienced spiritual brotherhood as a blessing in your life? How is it different from natural brotherhood, like being on a sports team, for example? Ask for celibacy. Jesus invites you to seriously, prayerfully consider celibacy because, quote, whoever can accept this ought to accept it, unquote, Matthew 19, 12. This puzzling phrase doesn't mean you need to force anything or try to earn God's favor. It means that every true disciple should make an honest offering of their lives to the Lord as openly as possible and follow wherever he leads. For some it will be celibacy, for others it will be marriage. Still others may remain single for various purposes to build the kingdom. But the point is to say once the Father's voice is heard, quote, not my will but yours be done, unquote. Luke 22:12. If celibacy is something the Lord wants you to explore, how would you go about this? Go back to being chosen. People who want to be selected go about it by making themselves more visible and available. The disciple does the same with God. We place ourselves in a position to be chosen, to hear this renewed call to fresh faith. Let me offer you an invitation, a first step to get you started. Begin praying for the Lord to give you a desire for celibacy. And, if you find that desire growing, ask more intentionally, Lord Jesus, let celibacy be your call for me.
I remember my reaction when God called me to celibacy. I laughed. There was joy in my response, but also wonder. I couldn't believe that God would want me of all people. The greatness of the gift stood in sharp contrast to my own not-so-greatness. Something about that disconnect just struck me as funny. You do realize who you're getting here, Lord, don't you? It reminds me of stories from the scriptures of others who were astonished at being chosen by God. Often they ask the same question, who am I? There's Gideon, Judges 6.15, David, 2 Samuel 7.18, Elizabeth, Luke 1.43, and Peter, Luke 5.8, who all feel amazement that God would favor them. I think this is true for all vocations, but it's especially notable for celibacy because, humanly speaking, there's no obvious cause for joy in such a call. Only with the eyes of faith can we perceive the great privilege in wonder and awe. God has asked something extraordinary of us. Andrew Apostoli, a founder of the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, once described his own call in similar terms. Commenting on Deuteronomy 7.7, he wrote, quote, The Lord set his heart upon you and chose you. God set me aside, as it were, to live an unusual life a life that demands that I do more than just what is necessary for salvation. I've been called to follow Christ by living radically the evangelical counsels of chastity, poverty, and obedience. My free and full response to this special call requires an undivided heart. I must always remember that my call to the consecrated life is a mystery. It can never be fully understood in merely human terms because it is the work of the Holy Spirit." Unquote.